Count of Sage. Yeah. <laughs> so, welcome everyone to Room of Requirement, episode three. You're good at this. <laughs> I'm one of your co-hosts, Kamalesh Rao, and with me is... Oh, Miracle Jones. And our guest... Oh, I'm Gene Thornton. Hey, I uh, write books. Uh, Miracle Jones and I run a publishing company. <laughs> Gene and I have been working together for 12 years. I think even more now. Longer than that. <laughs> That's some ridiculous time. We went to college together, and moved to New York together, and published books together. Mm. Thank you for being on this podcast. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. It's thank you for making tea for me. Oh, sure. <laughs> if you need more tea, I'll gain more tea. I know where the source, yeah, <laughs> the source is here. Um, yeah, just to remind all our listeners, uh, this is uh, our podcast dedicated to both self healing and resistance in the time of Trump. So the way we like to structure this podcast is we like to first talk about, I guess, self-care or healing, uh, like what we're doing to stay sane. Healing must be an ongoing process if, like, damage is going to be an ongoing process, right? Yeah. Like, it's just, like, it's he- it's healing not in the sense that you're, like, getting better, more that you're, like, standing still. Right? Yeah. Gene, how did you react to uh, the election? For us, I think, we talked a little bit about how the idea behind this podcast is, like, the election was a little traumatic, so that's why... Self-care is important. Yeah, I mean, we were actually hanging out together, like Miracle Jones and I were on the night of the election watching the returns, right? And it was just, um, I believe we said we have work to do when we, like, left that evening, which is, like, a very, like, a sort of response, you know, like, to, like, to City Hall or to, like, the Batcave or something, like, I guess there's sort of that, like, moving yourself to a position of intentionality over, like uncontrollable world events, right? Moving into a place of, like, <clears throat> feeling that you have the power to affect it. In, and, you know, maybe you do and maybe you don't, because I, I totally agree it was, like, a traumatic experience just, like, watching, like, our friend Cam was with us watching the election results come in. And she spent, like, a great deal of the time talking about, like, okay, like, there's still some votes in Michigan, right? Yeah. Like, this county could do it. You could watch the people on CNN doing it as well. It's like, well, there's still, like, these votes in this county. They haven't counted them all here, right? Like, it's going to take a while in this urban center. You're going to get a lot of, like, Clinton votes out of that. And just this dawning, horrible realization that, like, like, have you ever broken a limb? Yeah. No, no, I haven't broken a limb, but yeah, I've injured myself. I broke my wrist one time, like, really badly, like, back, like, like, you know, like, 30 degrees or something, like, falling over this, like, kind of low wall. Your leg, too. I've broken every limb, at least once. (laughs) One twice. But, um, I think two twice now. I don't know. Anyway, there's this moment of just horrible, like, you seeing your arm, like, bent back, and you're like, well, I, I gotta try that again, and, like, do it right the next time, right? Right? But it's like, that doesn't work. Like, your arm is broken. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? So that was what the election felt like and continues to, to the mm-hmm. point where it's just sort of fatiguing, I guess. I don't know. How are you staying sane and keeping it together? Or are you? <laughs> uh, mostly the holidays were helpful just to, like, not be around the computer part of the time, right? Like, I, was, I went back to see family and, like, didn't look at Twitter and, like, found it basically trying not to look at Twitter, trying not to look at Facebook more than a couple times a day rather than, like, following a story as it develops, right? Which is sort of, like... It felt like I was doing that from, like, 2015... Like, summer 2015 on, up to the election. Yeah. Like, with increasing intensity, it was like, oh, my God, like, how is this election going, right? And then, like, it was supposed to stop on the day of the election and kind of taper off where there's some, like, controversial, like, you know, cabinet picks or whatever, right? But it did not stop, 
and it continues going and there's like this sort of twin thing about like what monstrous things is this man doing and like what if he's too incompetent to do them so it's just like so like what if he does them badly like if he's like doesn't get around to something right that's great for us if it's like he badly implements a policy such that like a major sector of government is forever destroyed yeah um i i've been checking out of twitter uh, mm-hmm. that Twitter's my main thing I don't really go on Facebook um, but I realized that I like you I, I started really using or abusing Twitter somewhere in sort mm-hmm. of the last half of 2015 and I remember this distinctly um, because I went back to North Carolina to visit my dad my dad's a little bit older but he, and so he listens to the uh, TV it's really loud and he's watching CNN all day mm-hmm. and I was like well, what are you doing and he's like I can't, and he couldn't, he was transfixed by Trump, and he's not, he's not a Trump supporter, but he's just like, I can't, this guy is, is something, I, I don't know mm-hmm. what to think of him, and I was like, Dad, you're just this old coot, what are you talking about, watching news all day, like, <laughs> three months later, I'm like, on Twitter all the time, like, yeah. basically, I'm just doing a modern version of whatever my dad is doing. <laughs> yeah, totally, oh, um, yeah, yeah, and it, it just got to this point where right after the election, I feel like there was this sort of brief moment of like feeling like we must all do everything immediately possible to stop him like the phone calls is a specific thing where it's like you're like a monster who's like letting everyone in the country down if you don't call the senator immediately mm-hmm. and like tell them that they require this vote on this like amendment of, of a certain bill right or they need to take certain action and i made some of these calls right and it's sort of like it's exciting it's like well you could just call them you can like engage in government in that way right but it started to get really creepy feeling to me just the the sense that like the sense of sustained moral urgency yeah where it's like every day there's like two numbers that like your friends like because you, when you're talking about facebook and twitter it's like content that's generated by people you know usually yeah. people you respect or have decided to like give your attention to right and they're telling you is like you're like scum and filth if you don't call this number immediately i want you to know that you're like letting me personally down mm-hmm. and like that you won't like if the knock comes in the night i know that you won't be there to help me if you don't make this call it's sort of the like the level of urgency to it and you just can't be at that level of moral urgency because there's so much further to go into authoritarianism where that level of urgency is necessary when people begin like disappearing from your town right sure like you need to have the strength to do that at that point right right? the call so it's sort of like and also where are these numbers to call where are these like priorities coming from like who is setting them at a certain point who is spreading these things like it started to be like i had no idea where it's like voices are coming into your head telling you to take certain political actions and you don't know where they're originating. And it's someone's job, in some cases, to do that, right? If you work for, like, the site, like, Flippable or something. Yeah. Or you... So did you find it Did you find it in any way therapeutic to actually make the calls? I haven't made calls in the last, like, week or two. Like, I got married, like... Congratulations. <laughs> things. Like, I got married, like, four days later, we flew to see my family, mm-hmm. and then, like, drove around Texas, and then, like... It's immediately when we got back, we had, like, house guests, and it was, like, the New Year and stuff, so yeah. it just, like, got into this knot of, like, everyday things, right, and not thinking about the doings of, like, like, the Dark Lord <laughs> in his tower of hell in, like, midtown Manhattan, right? It was just, like... Is the fact that he's close to us in proximity, you know, just, like, right across the water, do you think that makes it harder or better? I think it makes it better. I was thinking about this on the... Because this is, like... You know, we're this this podcast is recorded in like Queens, USA, right? Yeah. <laughs> so like <clears throat> I hadn't been up to Queens really for since the election, I think, maybe. Yeah. Like I may have gone to a different part of it or something, but it was like going through it, I was like, wait, he's like from here, right? Yeah. And it's sort of like I remember what somebody was saying about the New York Times where it's like like anything the New York Times says 
will like sting greatly if you're like a native like Queens person. That's like the paper. Yeah. And it's like condemning you because it like it's like Manhattan voices like looking down on this like outer borough, right? So it's something about just thinking that this guy is like this malevolent, doofy, like incompetent construction boss who's like of New York, right? Yeah. <laughs> like it, it feels like the devil you know in a way that's good. Like I can't imagine if I was just like a radical queer person who's like lives in like like the South or something like that and thinking about like who is this monster? Where it's like I know this monster. This monster is not that impressive. That's what's so scary about it. Yeah. yeah. How have you been, you know, taking care of yourself? Like, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I don't know. Maybe self-care is, like, wicked or something. <laughs> but, uh, I was a wicked. I don't feel like it's wicked or something. I feel like it's, like, a luxury in a lot of times. Like, I can afford to not think about national politics in, like, ways that are immediately affecting me, right? Like, um, cause just like giving an example, right? Like I was like two years ago living in Texas, right? Like I'm like a trans woman, right? So the Republican political machine like maintained its hold over Texas, right? Where like the torch was passed from like the Perry mob mm-hmm. to like Abbott and then his creepy like hyper-evangelical like, I think he sees like visions or something like Dan Patrick. Dan Patrick, right? yeah. They're trying to pass um, a version of the North Carolina bathroom bill that is not only worse but like more malevolent in a way there's a lot of the opposition for North Carolina came from like trans men right where they're like well you don't want like these guys using the women's bathroom right so like so the Texas bill like specifically strips that out like it's only trans women have bathroom restrictions on the idea that like (laughs) the men can like take care of themselves right like if trans guys are trying to use the bathroom they'll get like beaten up by like powerful texas men right so it's like actually just like naked cruel social engineering against people but i don't live in texas anymore like there are people i care about who live in texas anymore but it's not like this has to be on my mind all the time right that's what I'm saying where, like, self-care can be a luxury because you just, if it's, like, I can step back from the sense of, like, moral urgency about making these calls, right? Because every one of these calls isn't going to immediately affect me or not necessarily immediately affect someone that I know or care about, right? I have the ability to say, like, I'm unconcerned in this matter. I, I hear you. I mean, I have an extremely precarious, like, mental state most of the time. Like, <laughs> world event make me depressed and uh-huh. give me anxiety, so... Our, hence our weekly check-in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. I, I'm happy about this podcast. So, so, for me, being able to do anything that I feel is effective, uh-huh. I have to make sure that I'm watching my own mental health levels. Totally, yeah. And that requires a lot of, like exercising and trying to eat right and mm. trying to like relax and find out you know what I mean and yeah. I know that if I don't do that I will spiral and yeah no totally 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 uh, but it, every you know I guess people are you're pretty strong minded <laughs> I don't know that that's true <laughs> no it's <laughs> I think that like I mean yeah like self care to that extent yes most everybody I know they will push themselves till they die you included <laughs> so I want to I want to make sure everybody's trying to stay you know because no absolutely you can't be in a state of moral urgency all the time like that will that will that will be required yeah yeah, yeah. you know it's if, if stuff goes bad yeah, for you know. uh have you found yourself reading more fiction or i found myself reading almost nothing we, uh, yeah well we uh i'm reading the temptation of saint anthony now which is crazy <laughs> what is the temptation of saint anthony it's flaubert so flaubert has like four books I think like one is Salambo one is Madame Bovary one is Bouvard and Pécuchet and one is The Temptation of St. Anthony right and it's like he considered it the best he, like, he thought like man like Madame Bovary that's like mm. whatever like apparently he worked on this book for I think he started it 
He started researching it in like 1845, uh, started writing in 1848, finished the first draft in 1856, and then like rewrote it from scratch a couple more times. So the fi- book finally like came out to his satisfaction in like 1876 or something. Mm-hmm. And it just kept getting shorter and shorter, where the first draft is like 500 pages, and yeah. then it got down to like 120 or something of just like extremely concise visions. All right. By the author of Madame Bovary, it's yeah. Is it good? Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's. I mean, it's weird. It's like not a novel. It's you know, like it, it's like I would I would almost say it's like a weird prose poem, where it's just this really yeah. sustained. It's in this sort of like script format. Yeah, where yeah. a lot of it is a dialogue between Saint Anthony and the demon Hilarion. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like grows as he discusses science. It's 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 good, but like it's not the most modernist. I mm-hmm. in, uh, in its. Uh, brevity and intensity and surrealness. I think it was a strong influence on parts of Ulysses. I'm almost, I- I'm almost positive I've read that. Yeah. And it's, um, I would be unsurprised if I were to read that if I haven't already read. It's like, um, like supposedly there's this sort of like back channel in which it was an influential book yeah. into like the 20s and 30s. Yeah, it feels like a Brit- Breton would have like loved that shit. Yeah, yeah, and it's like, yeah, and Flaubert is considered like, like a modernist voice anyway, just in terms of prose style, right? So it's like, it's like, like this is like the hard shit yeah. of like Flaubert. My day job is as an editor, so I start my day by writing my own work, and then I go into working on other people's work for like eight hours, and then like it's usually late enough that I have to be doing something else or like go out, and then like if I read at a certain point, I'll fall asleep. Like I used to get all my reading done on, like I got a lot today because I just like took the train up here, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um. I used to get my reading done, like, in the bathtub or, like, early in the day, and, like, I don't really do either of those anymore, so, like, my fiction consumption is down. So, Miracle Jones, how are you taking care of yourself? How was your past week in terms of uh, taking care of yourself? Well, I haven't smoked at all. Congratulations. Uh, I joined our gym. Uh, is it really 24 hours? No, it's not 24 hours. Because it says it's 24 hours. Uh, so there are certain days, of, <laughs> certain days of the week that it's open until 12, okay. and, then open at, and then opens back up to 5 a.m., but it is not 24 hours. All right, so that's just a damn lie. That is a damn lie. I am pretty excited about that. What would be the purpose of such a lie? It's, it's <laughs> a really interesting gym. I mean, yeah, I'm looking for it. I still have a bit of joy. I don't I'm curious. Once you start going there regularly, I'm curious to see what you have to say. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I've been less down this week than I was before. I think I think the weather's been nicer. The weather has been nicer. It's like 60 degrees out there yeah. right now. You know, you can walk around in a t-shirt if you yeah. want. Yeah. Uh, so that, that really has an effect on me. Yeah. Uh, so we'll see when things get colder. How about you? How's your... Uh, I mean, yeah, actually, it's been a good week for, I think, maybe similar reasons. Uh, with me, like, I've been watching what I eat, and we've been eating, cooking at home, and eating at home, and that's, that's nice, because I, I went back to North Carolina, I'm from North Carolina, and, like, I just come back there from there, and I'm like, I eat so much garbage yeah, when yeah, I'm yeah, there, yeah. and that's that's on me, that's not blaming the great state of North Carolina, but it is. It's, it's just, it is what it is. A little tobacco in every right, meal. Right. This is del- <laughs> Do you want to work with your tobacco? Yes. Um, it's required by law. Uh, so, uh, and so I just, I always feel like kind of a little bit gross and like a little less than exercised. And like, I'm, I'm getting older, so like all of this is really important. And so, uh, uh, like I have cholesterol issues. Like all these things I have to maintain. Um, but it was actually been a pretty good week, I think, in general. How's your arm? Um, yeah, I burnt the hell out of my arm uh, uh, day after Christmas. Um, so I was cooking, and it was just like a basically a just short of boiling. Oh, you got the, yeah, okay. Boiling uh, water, and so there's like a pretty nice scar around oh. here. So um, 
we can look at it at some point. Uh, oh, shit. Oh, uh, the reveal. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's gross. It's gross. It's yeah. I mean, it's not actually gross anymore, but um, yeah, it was gross for a little while. Mm. Uh, but the arm is totally fine. I'll go. I'll try to get to see the doctor next week sometime. So. Do you have to sleep weird? I was thinking about that. Do you, you have, have to sleep weird? Yeah. Uh, so I, I share a bed right. with my wife. So that involves a little bit of negotiation in terms of cuddling. Uh. Uh, so it's a little weird. And at some point, uh, my wife is a very good sleeper. Like, she's my hero when it comes to sleeping. Uh-huh. And um, and so at some point, I think early on, uh, we realized I, I couldn't sleep on, on the side where my arm faced her because... She just like turned around and just kind of elbowed me. She just dropped her elbow onto my like arm. Protection. And I was like, ah! And I woke up and she's like, what, what, what? Fell back asleep. Doesn't remember the thing to this day. Like, I mean, she reacted. She'll wake up enough to have a verbal conversation with Uh me, go back to sleep, and not be affected. Like, just won't remember the next day. So she sleeps. I don't know. How did the dead sleep? Because they sleep pretty well. (laughs) But anyway, so um, so the cuddling is a little hard. Uh, Um, so. It's been a it's been a pretty eventful week. Let's talk Trump and politics. Uh, we should actually talk about that. Is there ever going to be an uneventful week? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. They yeah. think we're just going to be exhausted. Yeah, I think there's going to be. A pl- I think it's going to be a vacation more than any president ever. I think there's going to be plenty of weeks where nothing's happening. But I, I think that it, yeah, maybe. All right. I think it's also going to be like at a certain point we're not going to know what's happening. That's what's scary to me. Yeah. Uh, that's not going to be. Like at a certain point we won't have news about what. This administration is doing. I think if things are are happening in in the background, I think the current administration is is media savvy enough to feed something. Like I think there will be something. It'll be a distraction or something like that. But so uh, I wonder. So if something, if nothing is happening, uh, I don't know. But if something bad is happening or something they don't want reported, they they are smart enough. They've done this in the past to like throw out distractions. So that's why I'm wondering. Is there ever going to be in this? Like, is there ever going to be a downtime? For well, that's an interesting point. So, are the cabinet choices a entertaining reality TV show cast? <laughs> no. Uh, and is that his first mistake? <laughs> There's a lot of press coverage on on this yeah. but, uh, and, and I think it's a, it's weird it feels like there's much more about press coverage around cabinet positions now than when Obama was coming to uh, uh, to power or pretty much in living memory and I guess there's a larger argument about how what does it actually mean to have a cabinet nominating someone like Jeff Sessions versus someone who's a little bit more centrist I mean how much effect will that have on a policy that uh, by someone like Trump who seems to make up his mind somewhat arbitrarily and off, you know shoot from the hip so I guess it depends on how power works in the government right like my friend Paul at one point was making a game called Ziggurats for Red Turtle which is a strategy game that's entirely the only choices you had are picking your advisors uh. and then your advisors would like you got to know everything about their psychology, like their vices, yeah. and then they would analyze the situation and present you with options that you could choose from. So there's certain strategic choices that would just never occur to you because you don't have your advisors, right? Yeah. I feel like that's a pretty good allegorical depiction of how the presidency works, right? As far as like reality show casting, it's interesting because I think he thought they were yeah. a good reality show cast, right? Like yeah. he, he's like there was a thing where there was somebody who had a mustache who was like disallowed, right? <laughs> where he was John Bolton. There was a, an article about casting. I can't remember, but someone was too short to be in the cabinet. Do you remember this? <laughs> yeah, and I, I don't remember who it was. But I, thought Jeff, but I thought Jeff Sessions is pretty short. Yeah, so there's someone who's too short. But he's so racist. <laughs> yeah, the picks are kind of for like he didn't have clear ideas. He could have picked like the entertaining cabinet or the like unambiguously destructive cabinet. Yeah. 
or the like cabinet that personally delights him most, right? <laughs> and he kind of tried to make in this get in this like muddled gray area sure. between all three. I think not picking Christy for anything was a really bad move. Why? Because it shows that if you support him to the extent that you basically destroy your career, you will not be rewarded for it. Also, Christy is a good speaker. He's really entertaining, and he's willing to say anything. Yeah, those, you know that was never going to fly. Right? Well, I mean, for personal been... reasons. For personal reasons. Did you just think they get along? No, because he's he prosecuted Kushner's father. Yeah, he put he put Jared Kushner's father in jail. There was no way that was going to fly. Really? Yeah, yeah. So it's it's all personal. Okay. Like, uh, yeah, that's. I mean, I agree. I think uh, within the Republican bench, yeah, Christie would have been interesting, and now he effectively is flailing yeah. career wise. So I mean, that's in some ways the loss of what semi moderate Republican um, and a, and an articulate Republican. Yeah, which is right yeah, yeah. Fuck. yeah. And someone who's had to run a Democratic s- state, and I think all yeah. of those are really important things yeah. for, for the party to think about. Uh, so yeah, I agree. But there was no way. The, the politics are so personal in the Trump uh, administration that mm-hmm. that I yeah I can't imagine them doing that. But I think Sessions is interesting because like he's obviously someone who really supported Trump from the beginning. And maybe even ideologically is, is somewhat is pretty simpatico. Um, and I guess to me, I wanted to talk about like how racist is he? What do you think? Um, uh, I think there are, there are problems with Jeff Sessions, right? As a as what he's going to advocate in terms of policy. But I think racism is sort of a smokescreen. Like everyone's like, okay, we're gonna we're gonna call him racist, and and that's good enough. But I think I, I think the the racist card has been dropped in lieu of a really substantial policy debate, which I think is just how I want things to work. It doesn't work in real life. So the thing, why do you think the NAACP like, went to his office? You know, that's like a significant investment of time where they like physically occupied his office yeah. in an attempt to raise awareness that this person should not be attorney general, right? Sure. I feel really loath to second-guess the NAACP's analysis of whether this man is racist or not, or whether his policies are going to lead to racism, right? Sure. I, I mean, I... Okay, so I... Have, yeah. You know, it's like, what they do <laughs> right. like, that's, is, like, determining who is racist and attempting to stop them, right? I don't want to, like... Right. So I I, I, say, I think that uh, I have no problem second-guessing the NAACP on who's racist because it's what they do, right? So, like, any advocacy organization on the right or the left is going to try to, like, that's... They are, in some ways, paid to be really sensitive to a certain issue. And sometimes... And I think it's... It, it's important to like say, okay, well, the NAACP is going to react and sometimes overreact to certain things. Now, I think the NAACP is as sort of being very sensitive to things like voting rights issues. Absolutely, I pay attention to them. Um, so that's that's what I'm saying. Like, is he racist? No, 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 no. Uh, is he going to reverse? Is he going to continue rather uh, to diminish voting rights? Um, that I think is a stronger argument. Yeah. I think Jeff Sessions is a brilliant lawyer, statesman, politician, uh, and would be immensely successful if he weren't so racist. Uh, will he be able to get racism uh, <laughs> characterized as a disability with the Americans with Disabilities Act? You know? <laughs> I was born racist. I can't help it. I shouldn't be persecuted for my racism. I don't think he would want it to be classified as a disability, so I think no. Oh. <laughs> His racism is so deep that he could yeah. never consent to have it being called a disability. That's, so, yeah, I, that's what I would do if I were Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> I think when you talk about the attorney general position, I worry about voting rights. And actually, I think 
well, the way I think about it, let's say he's racist, let's say he's not, whatever. I, I, I think the idea is that whatever way he sees the world between however he delineates right and wrong, it's really clearly that he's that the way he's funneled that through immigration, right? Sure. So, like, he is actually someone who's strongly against... Let's say you just give it for him. Okay, illegal immigration is just terrible. There's no redeeming quality. He's actually very against legal immigration. And yeah. that is... Like, I think, <laughs> yeah. I think that, that way of looking at the world, whether or not it's transmuted... In terms of, like, person, yeah. blood purity? And so uh, you see him, he'll, he'll, he'll make arguments that are like, okay, well, you know, immigration lowers the wage of working Americans or something like that. And it's a, it's a hard case to make economically, or it, it's a complicated case to make economically, but I think he's already made that judgment, and now he's just sort of finding an argument. And to me, that's a thinking that you would see in a racist, but now he's just sort of funneled it into uh, sort of an anti-immigration stance, which is not racist, but it is it is a sort of way of thinking of the world that is simplistic and one could argue maybe somewhat prejudiced. I mean, the thing that terrifies me about him in that position is like, whatever, without like a knowledge, a working knowledge of his soul, right? <laughs> or the thing is like... Just that with, like, protests in this country over the last, like, two years in particular, right? And, like, you know, I lived in New Orleans directly before coming here, and then seeing the New Orleans Police Department as it was in, like, 2010 versus how it is now, where, like, the incoming mayor of New Orleans sought a federal consent decree. So, like, basically saying, like, okay, this police department is pretty racist, so we're going to ask the Department of Justice to step in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we're going to have them, you know, do everything that Campaign Zero, the Black Lives Matter offshoot, wants. Like, we want to have additional training and de-escalation of officers. We want to have officers connected to communities more. Same thing that was happening in Dallas as well. Mm-hmm. A lot of the protests from Black Lives Matter has been to raise awareness in order to push Campaign Zero initiatives, right? To try to get police departments to handle protests um, across racial lines to de-escalate to the point where you can start to have productive conversations, right? So it doesn't have to be like everybody is out in the streets. It's like you can have like meeting with like DeRay and like Obama and John Bell Edwards, like governor of Louisiana, right, in a room together saying, like, okay, let's talk about what happened in Baton Rouge, whether that's productive or not. I think like Jeff Sessions is not going to improve this process. No. He will do the exact opposite, and he was selected to do the exact opposite. I agree with that. And to just whether he's going to implement or not is a signal to say, like, basically, don't, you don't have to take that seriously. That is exactly the most terrifying thing, right? It's like right. the next time there's, like, a murder by police, and then, like, people go out to protest it, and then, like, there's no compunction about using the National Guard. There's no compunction about doing any of these things. There's no compunction about... I think that Jeff Sessions is going to be bad on two or three major topics. And I think that's with the idea of how much the federal government interacts with local policing efforts. I think you're absolutely right, Gene. I think... Um, and then also with voting rights. I think yeah. voting rights is it's going to be substantially not pared back, but I, I think in some ways the government isn't where you go to try to try to expand voting rights or try to make sure that voting rights are safe on the margin. And that's uh, I think that's what it said. And I, racism is a, is a hard thing to accuse something of, someone of, and I think it's it's distracting when they're at substantial. Calling someone a racist is like it is like, like it has been said that this is like the worst thing you can call like a white southerner, right? Is like racist. 
it is like the most offensive statement okay in their own mind yeah so like it is why we should continue to do it <laughs> yeah. you know like, it should be hard to deal with Jeff Sessions and it should be like if you, if you if you should not be able to come to Jeff Sessions with like like say it's like well I'm gonna meet this guy with an open mind you should be thinking like this guy is the most racist person who's ever like <laughs> ever racisted right and then let him do the work of like walking that back right yeah. if he's like if he has to bend over backwards to convince you that he's not a racist he will be empirically less racist in his actions right? or like, and less effective I mean he'll be yeah you know he will be thinking about it all the time and it will make him flub his lines and miss his blocking <laughs> yeah uh, well here's, here's something I think I think I think the war we're gonna see is the land versus the cities you know and I think Jeff Sessions is a great representative of the land and yeah. I think uh, alright you wanna talk about uh, other cabinet uh, cabinet nominee Rex Tillerson you guys are Texans we right? are Texans uh, I'm very conflicted about Rex Tillerson honestly it was actually very moving to watch his hearing with uh, Cornyn and Cruz yeah. both talking about him right yeah it felt like all of them were vile, but like it just felt so like nice. Yeah, you know, he went to the University of Texas. Uh, he's an oil executive. I feel like he's Trump's concession to Texas. There's not a natural fit there. And he knows the Secretary of State will be out of the country a lot of the time, mm-hmm. so we won't have to deal with them. And I, th- I think that might be a huge mistake. He'll have core values that might conflict with Trump's foreign policy with respect to human rights abuses and... Yeah, to me, Rex Tillerson is... I mean, it's an interesting nominee. I don't know if I agree with it. I, you know, there's, uh, it's a complicated nominee. Yeah. But I, he's not going to survive, right? Like, I mean, it, it, one of the... He's not going to survive this, right? Like, yeah. I mean, he's mm. in... Like, Rubio is, is, is basically, like, flailing him. And, yeah. and, mm-hmm. uh, and the thing that was interesting with the confirmation hearing, unrelated, is that he ran the Boy Scouts for yeah. a period of time. Yeah. I was I interested in that. Yeah. yeah. But um, uh-huh. it's it's like with the Rubio exchange was really fascinating just because it was, it seemed well, like I a lot of go it back was to, like... I want to go back to the Boy Scouts. Point. That's all I know. It's just, <laughs> it was, like they said that one of the, one of the people who was like yeah, he speaking the, in his defense was saying like, we've ran the Boy Scouts together for many years. And I was like, that's so strange to think of somebody going from the Boy Scouts to like Secretary of State, right? Like what is, <laughs> there is a line of continuity, but it's a strange one. Just, just um, to be uh, upfront, I, I was, I was a Boy Scout and, uh, I, I too was a boy scout. Yeah, as an so. Eagle Scout. So I stayed with the organization despite my yeah. I only made first class. I have a Alright, let's do a build a fire. I have uh, I have a love for the organization that is uh, that is somewhat conflicted. But yeah, no, it made me feel better about him. Like yeah, knowing that, right? Because yeah, it is yeah. a very complicated organization, right? Yeah. Why he's such an interesting nomination for me is that the Secretary of State has this kind of like strange archetypal role where it's kind of like like a variation on the president in a way right like where it's you know like John Kerry didn't get to be president but he could be secretary of state you know like Hillary Clinton didn't get to be president Colin Powell like Condoleezza Rice these are all people who are like you could see them as the president right I think in some ways the people who nominate them also have this going on Mm. where this is sort of like a shadow self or like sort of a deep expression of like how I feel about myself right Mm. on my best days yeah it's interesting that Donald Trump would see Rex Tillerson in that way, right? This weird, like, taciturn, like, man of deals, right? Who's like, 
Yeah. It's a fake CEO. Uh-huh. I'm reading a real one. Yeah, 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 no, totally. It's like it's it's like this like it, it's like a Texan CEO also, yeah. right? It's like yeah. a. <laughs> I have no problem with saying that Rex Tillerson is a better version of Donald Trump. Like, oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And that makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. You can almost say that about like almost anyone, really. <laughs> <laughs> but we can, yeah. Do but um, Tillerson, like him being from Texas and being in the oil business in Texas, is really interesting because the Texas oil industry has a lot of like really unorthodox ideas about climate change. Like they're aware that they're they can't keep doing this. Yeah. Like, they're aware that just, like, eventually everyone's going to wise up and make them stop, so they are really actively looking for, like, alternative energies and ways to phase out of oil, right? They're going to try to keep doing oil as long as they can, but they know the jig is up more than, I think, a lot of, like... More than gas Republican, problem. yeah, more than like Republican politicians yeah. generally who like just yeah. toe the right. line on climate. No, like the like like so it's there's something cheery in that that like the Secretary of State like knows the jig is up about oil uh, rather than being a true believer about climate change tonight. Right, right. I They're, think Texas, like, yeah, Texas, uh, the industry has, has really invested a lot. And uh, I think solar, but also wind farms. Wind I think, farms, yeah, and wind yeah. farms in particular. And so, like, yeah, there, there's a, another thing about uh, Tillerson, which is. How well are businessmen going to be able to, with no government experience, function as the head of a huge bureaucracy? Which I think is a hard mm-hmm. conversation, mm-hmm. but that's why I think Tillerson's interesting. I, I wouldn't, everyone's talking about Russia, but I, I want more substantive. As it, I've probably spent most of my argumentative life, I guess, arguing with engineers from the University of Texas. Yeah. <laughs> and I think they're amenable to new information and they're capable of debating in good faith. I question the conclusions they come to. I think he's a sneaky pick. Yeah. For that it makes me feel better about the Trump administration. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Like the, uh, and I think I think he might be Cruz's revenge. Uh, yeah. uh, if Cruz is stalking horse to create that scandal that will let Cruz or somebody like Cruz primary him in four years. Uh, interesting. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, I wanted to bring up local politics just because I think I mean when we talk about the podcast, right? We talk a lot about national politics, and I think for our podcast, what are we going to do in terms of talking about local politics? Because it, it's important, and mm-hmm. as we focus and we talk about like the Democratic ground game. What does that really mean? Like, okay, I live in New York City. I live in Queens. And I'm going to say that the Democrats have a pretty good ground game here. <laughs> um, but uh, we also come from different places. Like, I, Gene, I don't know. Were you born in Texas? No, Michigan. Michigan. All right. So, um, so, uh, uh, but you went to school in Texas. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, at least you have, like, we don't, we don't necessarily come from, like, mm-hmm. Manhattan, right? We didn't, we weren't raised yeah. in Manhattan. Uh, and I, I grew up in North Carolina, so like uh, I at least have something calling me that says, okay, well, you know, there's something outside of the world of New York City. So how do we want to think about local politics now? Because I think part of the democratic shock of the elections was we were sort of blindsided by how bad the ground game was, which is if we paid attention to signals, it would have been very obvious to us. Right. You know, when I moved back up here, um, immediately from New Orleans, right, like, there was the mayor of New Orleans, Mitchell Andrew, was going through this sort of initiative to try to involve people district by district. New Orleans is divided into, like, five uh, letter districts, A through E, right? So I went out to one of these, like, district meetings, right, thinking, like, for a while, it's like, I should go to, like, local government things, right? And the mayor was, like, standing there. The entire government was required to attend the meeting, right? And then you got to go up there and say a grievance or a comment or anything like that, right? Mm -hmm. 
he would record that and at the end of it go through everybody's grievances like collecting them where need be and then link people up with like the specific representative they needed to talk to yeah most of the grievances were like there's no drainage at my intersection yeah there's like a house that has been blighted there's not enough money to remove it like yeah. drug dealers are living there they just moved a couch in the other day what am i going to do about it? that was like a, a specific problem that i remember being fascinated by the, the, the slow pro- the slow progression of it yeah where these the <laughs> dealers were starting to move furniture into the blighted yeah. house right, right. <laughs> It was just literally like a nominal head of the government linking people up with like specific officers who did specific things, right? And yeah. I was going there shortly after the Alton Sterling thing happened in Baton Rouge, right? A friend of mine was like really affected by it and we were trying to talk about how to do an evening with like police officers from the community to talk, basically rent a hall mm-hmm. and like have a cop there and you could just like talk to the cop for yeah. like two hours, right? Yeah. And then, like, everyone would go get coffee afterward. Yeah. It was, like, sort of the idea that I had for this event. This event ended up not coming together, right? Yeah. But, like, we were able to be connected by the mayor with the person who did, like, community outreach from the police department, who was like, yeah, like, I could, like, pull the officers. If you can just, like, get a hall, like, I'll pick, like, a time where they're, like, not on duty. They'll get, like, certain... You know, it's, like, these extremely low things, like, this, like, street is messed up. Yeah. Like, this pavement needs to be cracked. Like, moving up here, the... I think New York's, like, local government systems were kind of like sewn up long ago (laughs) like when i was looking into like well how do you go to a council meeting here like what does the city council does like it's so centralized under the mayor's office so centralized in manhattan and you just don't have any impact on that so i think it's like block associations become very important yeah despite not having like immediate power just because it's like if you need something done like the block association can act as like it, shortly before the election, I've been talking about this book, like called like uh, Germans, Germans into Nazis. Yeah, about where he's talking about the Nazi Party being able to take power because at some point in the twenties, like there was this initiative to say, like, all right, well, like every block should have a Nazi on it that you can go to for like favors, right? Like, so if you're like a member of the Nazi Party, you move to like a certain like block and like help out with like bake sales. Mm-hmm you know, like, help walk people to the hospital if they need to go or something like that. And then, like, people are then willing to vote for the Nazis. Yeah. Because, like, whatever they say, like, you know your local Nazi, right? And they, they help you out, right? The same happened with Hamas, um, where people were willing yeah. to vote for Hamas because Hamas would get you, like, medical care if you needed it. I think that, like, if there's going to be any long-term solution to Trumpism, just this strange idea now that, like, of discrediting all information that's national in the first place, right? Which is now starting to happen where, like, there, there will just be, like, no sense of reality yeah. within two years, I think, of this administration taking hold. Like, you need to have some kind of concrete thing, and I think, like, block associations and extremely local politics are the way to do it. In general, I think Democrats have concentrated themselves, so it's mm-hmm. it's hard for me to think about, um, I mean, I'm from North Carolina, so, so uh, like, Buncombe County, which is, a, is where Asheville is, but thinking about, uh, you know, immediately surrounded, uh, around, surrounding Asheville, a lot of rural, kind of mountainous areas, um, mm-hmm. and thinking about how do you do outreach there, and, you know, you have a central city, mm-hmm. um, but, like, what does it mean to have a, uh, what does it mean to deliver uh, the five counties around Asheville? Um, how do you reach out? How do you how do you think about having a Democrat on every corner? Um, and I think it's an interesting question. Like, and I, but I live in New York City, so that's effectively not my. Uh, well, see, I think even thinking about it in terms of like, how do I deliver like these five counties? Right, is almost yeah. thinking too large. Right, like I'm yeah. thinking of like another another piece of media is this uh, guy named Mike Collier. I don't think the book is out yet. I did some um, work on a book with him, where he had run for office in Texas. He had been a lifelong Republican. Mm-hmm switched um, over like a Rick Perry um, 
era scandal about the firing of teachers mm-hmm. who had, like um, switched over to join the Democratic Party, right? Mm-hmm. And it was talking about just the way that there was a cascading effect. When he switched over, all of his friends, he was in the oil business for a number of years, mm-hmm. and all of his friends are like Texas oil men, right? Yeah. And, like, and where it became thinkable to be a Democrat because he switched over, and they were like, well, like, He's not, like, a liberal, right? No. I mean, this guy was, like, an oil lawyer yeah. <laughs> or an oil accountant, right? That's, like, the most solid kind of person you could be is a Texas oil accountant, right? Yeah. So, like, if a Texas oil accountant could be a Democrat, like, maybe I could be a Democrat too, right? So, like, local politics is creating possibility models, right? Like, you know what's really, you know who's really good at this is the Church of Satan yeah. in the South. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, what yeah. I'm talking about when yeah. I'm talking about local politics, yeah, right? absolutely. Explain what Church of Satan? Yeah, like, so the South, as you know, has all these built-in uh, religious laws that create a conduit for Christianity to affect legislatures, and uh, the Church of Satan is really effective at using these religious freedom laws in order to uh, get Satan up there, too. <laughs> yeah, like, they had planned to install a monument of, like, the Ten Commandments, yeah. right? So the Church of Satan kick-started um, a statue of Baphomet, like, with children, like, holding, like, its legs. Yeah. And, like, you could sit on the statue and everything like that. And yeah, it's, like, sorry. Uh, one of the, like a one ghost, ghost, a goat demon. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, like, the whole idea was that, like, the exact same law applied to, like, why it was okay to just have this, like, goat demon statue that, like, was designed for kids, yeah. you know? And, like, they'll put a billboard saying, like, is somebody bullying you at school? Like, call someone who cares with, like, a picture of Baphomet, like, a phone number, right? <laughs> nice. Protestant churches will get state funding or state approval to hand out pants pamphlets to school children sure. uh, to have like prayer breakfast and rally around the pole prayer ceremonies you can't fight it you can't say no no one should be able to do that you know they're mm-hmm. pissed at you but you can say we need equivalence we need to have like a morning prayer to satan <laughs> and we need to be able to hand out our pamphlets telling you how to get into hell <laughs> uh, <laughs> and you know that shit works it really pisses them off have to deal it's with not, it's not even just trolling like they legitimately like raise sure. money for like people's hospital bills oh, and stuff. Like yeah, they're yeah. like a toy drive, yeah. you know, like where it's like a toy drive by the church of Satan, whatever. But it's like, but they like gather toys and deliver them to kids. Yeah, like it's like it still still happens. Doesn't matter why, you know, you're still doing charity work. So yeah. local politics needs to be more like the Church of State. Yeah, exactly. Okay. All right. Uh, yeah, I, just, I, I want an ongoing discussion. I didn't have any great conclusions or yeah. thoughts about it. Um, but yeah, and we can we can check in with the local politics of Jackson Heights. My source of information for the. Uh, uh, for the neighborhood is our, our Facebook, uh, uh, I guess, meeting board or whatever, uh, meeting group. And so it's an interesting, like, collection of people. Parents, uh, there's a guy, Rodrigo Salazar, who just posts a lot. Like, he posts a lot, like, big things about the Democratic Party, and then, like, little things about, like, traffic. Yeah. And, like, uh-huh. and, like hey, pizza owners, clean up your shit. Go <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, that's great. That's, yeah. like, local politics. <laughs> right, yeah. it's great. And so, um, and it's interesting because someone just came up on the, on the the board and he's like hey you know can I get some volunteers to help us like reorganize this um, reorganize this, this board um, and it's not really clear what his agenda is and I'm super curious about it <laughs> what's his name do you remember uh, I, I can look it up but yeah. like it, it was it was really interesting because he and it seems like they want to get away from some of the politics stuff um, or the national level politics and focus yeah. on local politics which seems reasonable um, but he's also a guy whose Facebook uh, photo has a picture of him like smoking a stogie which I I don't know if he wanted to invoke Satan but that's what I think of <laughs> yeah as Satan um, so I think you know if Rodrigo would ever be uh, 
amenable to it, we should actually um, have him on because he's he's really active on his board and he's and it's really cool. Yeah. Do you want to talk about this BuzzFeed report? I'm happy it's buried well below everything else that's more important about talking about in politics, but um, there are important things about it, but yeah. since it's unverified, like... The fact that it was a, a report compiled by a British intelligence agent by the Republicans as opposition research on Trump is verified. It was considered to be interesting or well-sourced enough or to make it to the eyes of both Obama and Trump in the in the guise of a two-page summary. So, uh, I guess the revelations in it that have been reported on, the, the uh, less savory ones, have really made national news. But the more interesting elements of the, of the report, the most interesting things are uh, what they have to say about Russia's uh, analysis of American politics. And this is just a quote. Uh, a senior Russian official said the Trump operation should be seen in terms of Putin's desire to return to 19th century great power politics anchored upon countries' interests rather than the ideals-based international order established after World War II. She had overheard Putin talking in this way to close associates on several occasions. At least according to this report for, for Russia, for Putin, Trump was seen as a more favorable candidate because he was more nationalist uh, and therefore would allow Russia to be more nationalist uh, and every other country. That the idea of a global order and some sort of global law would not be attractive to Trump and therefore Putin wouldn't have to abide by it either. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that. I mean, we talked a little bit about this. Like yeah. There is some familiarity, there is some resemblance between uh, the outlook of Putin and the outlook of Trump. Yeah. And, and that's terrible but like <laughs> and, and it makes sense why someone like Putin would necessarily like Trump you know, whether or not they have a compromise on him or not but yeah uh, and here's another quote that I found interesting which was that equally important is Kremlin objective to shift policy consensus favorably to Russia in US post Obama whoever wins both presidential candidates opposition to TPP and TTIP viewed as a result in this respect so it's what we were saying earlier, where trade policy is effectively no longer on the table for discussion, yeah. and unmourned. Uh, you know, at least according to this document, it was a, a clear goal of, of Russia's foreign policy. And right. Mm -hmm. it succeeded 100. percent Right. Yeah. yeah. And I think looking sort of beyond you know the next couple of, of weeks, um, you know, I mean, the idea that we would that it is not in a nation's interest to somehow cooperate with other nations. Mm -hmm. Is silly, right? Like, yeah, I mean, mm -hmm. and so th this great power relationship where I'm going to dictate, I'm going to meet on terms that are equal across the board, and I'm going to try to dictate as much as I can, seems silly, right? Like, I mean, there are reasons that we formed, uh, uh, all countries form these uh, organizations or form these cooperation agreements out of self interest, right? It was in some ways self interest of, of whoever was in the machinery of power, whoever had the machinery of power at the time, right? So, and I don't think that goes away, right? Uh, there are reasons that n nations would cooperate with each other and form pacts. And uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, uh, other other topic of interest was just uh, at least according to this document, there was a lot of disagreement at the highest levels in the Russian government whether this was a good idea or not. For instance, Medvedev was uh, purportedly totally against any election tampering uh, for the main reason that he just didn't want people to keep Russians out of America, uh, and he saw whatever happened, if, if, this, if they were to get caught, uh, Russian 
influence would you know yeah. disappear from the banking industry uh, yeah, people mm -hmm. would start to mistrust anybody with a Russian name on their board which I think was wise of him to worry about it's interesting that like the Putin would go against that the only justification for believing in great power politics is like a deep cynicism that like even if you have an international order like there is like somebody who is quietly just the great power but won't admit to it right mm -hmm. which I think is like kind of generally a Russian position <laughs> is that like there is there's always been great power politics it's just been like America was the great power because like we were the one not blown up after World War II right <laughs> so like we could like <laughs> declare all these things right so um I guess the whole idea is that like if you're terrible enough you don't need people to like you because they will have to deal with you right which is what's like so grim about TPP in some ways right like I, I understand why there was opposition to it from like position of like workers rights you know <laughs> but the fact that it was an attempt to keep the u.s involved in south china right an attempt to like resist like like chinese hegemony in that region right and to like use that to balance against other regions right and, and just like, to create a yeah. uh, system of laws in order to keep you know people from abusing mm -hmm. workers I think yeah i mean I, uh, trade is also very complicated right so like there, yeah. are, there are a number of things you balance out and i it, and you could argue that uh, TPP was counter hegemony, right, to mm -hmm. Chinese hegemony, and and that's why China didn't like it. Um, yeah, and, um, or Russia. Yeah, mm -hmm. and so that's just, it's a complicated thing. But it's not that I, it, I think it just died. The fact that it died without replacement right. means that we effectively checked out the idea that we were going to try to engage in all the things that trade involves. I mean, we all assume that had Hillary Clinton been the president, she just would have reintroduced TPP Quite with like really. cosmetic changes yeah. within like two months of election, right? I think it would have been hard. I actually, like, you don't think I, so? I actually think that that's not true in one way. I think I both. I think both the Democratic Party and the and the Republican. Party. It's weirder that the Republican Party walked away from trade. I think the Democratic Party was definitely leaning towards it. I, th I think that, effectively, with the Sanders candidacy... But that, Obama would have done it. I think Obama would have passed mm -hmm. it and yeah, taken so that bullet for Clinton. Okay, uh -huh. yeah. maybe maybe that's true. Maybe yeah. he would have snuck it in. Yeah, and, okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. That, it's true. That's that's possible. But but uh, if it was unpopular enough, they could have they could have eaten out the margins anyway. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what's happening. So there's a, a secular... Across the aisle, there's sort of a walking away from trade. Mm. Uh, well, should we move on to yeah. the left? <laughs> so, <laughs> the left, right? <laughs> we have a, a section we call Doubling Down on Defeat, uh, <laughs> where we talk about what, what's pissing us off about the Democratic Party or the left. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, so something I, something I have on here is just like talking about the role of Clinton, Obama, and I guess Sanders, and to what extent they're going to take all the air out of the room for new blood, or whether their existing power bases and the love that people have for them is going to be useful in fighting Trump. I think at least Sanders is trying to pass the torch very consciously with like our revolution, right? Mm. Whether it's effective or not. Like his donation system is right. You would have donated like $27 to me, right? Now you can donate... $13 and it's going to be split up among these six candidates in these races and I mean, he's going to always have this running idea of what race is the most effective right it's sort of like what did you follow like when Lawrence Lessig tried to do the May Day yeah, project right yeah. it's like like a more like left version of that where like May Day was supposedly bipartisan right which is why people didn't like it <laughs> um, I feel like Clinton may do that I feel like she is uh, 
like she's a believer in institutions, right? Mm-hmm. Where if she doesn't have like a personal political ambition, I don't know. Maybe she wouldn't do any work if she doesn't have a personal political ambition. I don't know if I believe this or not, but she might. She's a, a candidate for mayor of New York, like against De Blasio, against or De Blasio in a primary. Um, or maybe De Blasio would step aside, move up, and Cuomo would run for something higher, and he would go for governor. Yeah, this is just the gross thing the Democratic Party does. Yeah. Like, I don't think they should do that. Yeah. I think that maybe she should just not run for mayor. As would much you, as I like her. You would know, you vote like, for Hillary Clinton over de Blasio? Um, I haven't... I just don't know enough about de Blasio. I know he got rid of the horses. I know there's, like, general things. I would. It's That's, like, a thing where it's, like, if two people are running against one another in the same party, I would need to spend a lot more time yeah, looking yeah, at them yeah, before yeah, I for anything sure. like that. Yeah. I think, like, on a broad strokes level, I like the idea of de Blasio. I like the idea of, like, a like a scrappy, like, socialist who's in there, like, fighting for the people, right? It's sort of his, like, broad strokes narrative, right? Yeah. Versus, like, she would be, like, Bloomberg Part 2, right, basically? Like, more, like, left-wing Bloomberg. Yeah. But it would be different because it would be a Trump administration, so if we're seeing an assault on the cities... When you say it's an assault on the cities, like, what does that mean? Like, what specific thing about the cities is being assaulted? Because I don't Star- disagree with you, I'm just trying to figure out what the assault is going to be. Starving them for federal funds. It's very protectionism, I think. Okay. Yeah. yeah, because that, that effectively, Sessions will say, hand over your immigrant, illegal immigrants, they'll say no, and then federal funding dies. It dep- again, it depends on how unified the Republican Party is about this. And th- I think that's actually up for grabs. Um, but that's, I think that's a very clear uh, chain of events in my mind. Not necessarily guaranteed to happen, but I think that... And in right-wing media, the idea of a sanctuary city, that they, they use that as cover to attack what they do, everything they mm-hmm. do. Totally. Uh, right, but I, th- I think it's going to also, I mean, it's it's going to play out a, a much more than cities. I mean, there's certainly rural populations that... Especially uh, any agricultural rural population is going to depend a lot on mm-hmm. labor that they don't re- they don't document so well, um, mm-hmm. and it's going to uh, cause a major upheaval. So I think that's it's it's going to be up beyond cities. I think cities will be very vocal and very obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the things is that the Democratic Party, and this is irritating to me, and I already mentioned it, but like I think we've stopped having a substantive debate about where we want immigration to be, right? Like, and and what we want with an Attorney General who is solidly against legal immigration that's a position that seems to be echoed i think at least by elements of the trump administration that's something that we are just not talking about open borders one currency hemisphere common market <laughs> Boom. Wow. Yeah. it's the blasio's time to to prove that he can be an effective countervailing force to the trump administration and to the extent that he is i'm definitely supporting but i just he, don't know if he can if he caves if he can't then i would be up for a challenge and i think hillary clinton would be somebody who would get revenge, which I would like to see, I just using the forces of New York. I don't think she would be particularly moderate during a Trump administration. I think the other thing is that the Democrats don't have a great bench, and yeah. so when we're talking about it, we're like, oh, we need someone strong, or maybe Blasio can't do the job, and then we also have a very short list of names we can pull from, mm-hmm. maybe Hillary Clinton, and it's not... And it, I mean, come on! I, I think I think it's it's a shame that we don't necessarily know. Okay, well, who's a who's a tough Democratic candidate who could run for mayor, who could be an effective on, effective on the national stage? I'm just trying to even decide whether I believe the Democrats have like a weak bench, right? Yeah. Like I believe, like in- intuitively, I want to agree with that, right? Sure. But then I'm thinking about like why do I want to agree with that? And I, was like, I actually don't know. 
they have like this kind of old guard, like largely Clinton associated people. There's like Cory Booker is like the young one, right? Mm-hmm. Elizabeth Warren is like the young one, right? But it's like the Republicans seem to have a stronger bench because they have like no bar to entry because it's totally driven by ideology, right? An ideologically pure Republican who has like some kind of basic seeming competence, right, in whatever yeah. field they've chosen can be like a rising star in the party. Right. Whereas the Democrat, yeah. because the Democratic Party is so tied to really like long legacy interests and like pork barrel things and all these like you have to get the support from like various like institutions in complicated older cities, right? You can't oh. just you can't just be like the most democratic. I think the Republican Party has enough uh, institutions or or similar analogous factions within it that there are there are people coming up from different regions and different uh, sides of the party or different parts of the party so but I think what happens is that in order to become a Republican you have to have you have to have a certain checklist so it's not yeah. that uh, and and so I think that checklist is very clear guns abortion and maybe now immigration <laughs> right but I also think that there was there was an ideological purity test I think for the Democrats for a while like where are you placed on uh, the Iraq war right like I mean that was that was a purity test. Uh, there are probably a number of them uh, that we can think of. Now it's now it's banking. How much do you hate? Yeah. Banks? How much do you have yeah. banking? Yeah. So like there are. I think there are. That's fair. Yeah. Uh, there are purity tests, but they uh, they're just not as clear. On, uh, and they're evolving. We don't. Yeah. Know, because there's not a religion to tell you. I mean, there's you know mm-hmm. maybe the Church of Satan can be the <laughs> <laughs> the guiding the guiding yeah, flame. Yeah, yeah. How, this, uh, yeah, yeah. I want to see. <laughs> you know, I want to see uh, uh, Democratic leaders have to shake hands with like a witch. <laughs> in order to get that Satan vote, you know. <laughs> uh, so you want to get it outside the bubble? Yeah, yeah. So we have a, a segment where we just talk about conservative media that we have imbibed that as homework. Oh wow! Uh, in order to to improve our understanding. In terms of uh, in terms of my my um, outside the bubble. Uh, media source. Um, so there's something called Potomac Watch by the Wall Street Journal. Okay. And so it is their Washington-based reporters are also the editorial board that cover mostly national politics. Um, so in a lot of ways, uh, they are sort of the Republican business side apologists. Um, but I think what they do well, and so like a lot of it is like, uh, so they, they tend to be really suspicious of Democrats and they don't like Democrats. And I think that's just part of the package. Um, what I think is interesting about them, though, is that they do cover economic issues better because I think they come from the Wall Street Journal. They, uh, in particular, uh, I think when they were talking about um, sort of, uh, I think they did a pretty good job, actually, their latest podcast was talking about uh, Donald Trump's business interests, right? And I think that any sort of mainstream press would be like, okay, he has a lot of business conflicts, but I think they were able to say, they're able to parse it a little better because they, they deal a lot more with business. So what does this actually mean? And I think their conclusion in this case was that, okay, it's a step forward, it, but it's not, it's not enough, right? Like there's going to be a number of conflicts of interest, all of that is, but I think the way that they were, were parsing it and the way they were analyzing it, that was really effective. And also just talking about what could be the possible economic kind of policies of Trump and really uh, being clear about, okay, well, I think we think this is good, we think this is bad. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with all their conclusion, but I think that they have a, a viewpoint that I think is interesting and we're learning from. And again, I a lot of times I think they are sort of the talking points of, of sort of the centrist Republican Party mm-hmm. and they are partisan and that forms a way of, of them thinking about the world but there are certain things I like about that blog so I will listen to it I don't necessarily have to listen to everything but um, I think certain topics they do really in a way that I thought that was informative So I'm a little bit disappointed in the Wall Street Journal's coverage of this election 
uh, honestly? I think it's been on the decline for years. I yeah. think I think there was a uh, there was a time maybe in the distant past that I thought the Wall Street Journal was a great paper. Yeah. Uh, and now I don't. But I also feel that way about the Washington Post. I just I, uh, I don't think they did a very good job either. I, I think, think they did a better job than most. I thought the Washington Post acquitted itself more than any other national paper. I mean, they went after the right stories, but I don't think they did a very good job of at least appearing to be nonpartisan and and uh, uh, objective. Also, I think they missed some stuff. Like, I think that... Not putting out the leaked opposition research, that's pissed me off about every newspaper that had a copy of that. It was in, it, it was what they were thinking about as far as Trump's relationship to Russia. They're going to have to prove to me why they didn't. Uh, because I think that would have had a huge effect on the election, at least as far as steering the conversation into certain aspects that we're now legislating when it's too late to talk about. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, yeah you're totally right. The, the time to bring that stuff up would be before he, this man has the luxury of just saying, like, no, no questions yeah. from critics. Yeah. I wish I had been able to make up my mind about it when it mattered. Yeah, that would have really swung you, because you're really in, on the fence about who you're going to vote for. <laughs> 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 you get the booth and you flip the yeah. All right, all right, all right. Uh, okay. Fair. <laughs> Uh, so my contribution to outside the bubble segments is just my own fascination with Lindsey Graham. <laughs> I think I share with a lot of people on the left. What's your fascination with him? Uh, oh, so, so, what's your source? Sorry, what, what's the what's the uh, is it a book or just his biography? I recommend check reading up about Lindsey Graham because you see him and he's invoked, but just finding out where it comes from yeah. and who he is. Uh, his family, you know, they own bar and mm-hmm. in in South Carolina. And when Lindsey Graham was very young, they both his parents both died, uh, and he was in the Air Force. And he was he had to come home and take care of his sister, his baby sister, and, and you know, roam this bar. So he basically has Dave Eggers' life. Uh, and you know, then he got his law degree, kind of on his own, while still taking care of his sister. Uh, and then you know worked his way up in politics uh, and he's most well known for being I guess a hawk but also you know he's kind of the uh, he's kind of modern day Dick Russell in that there's no chance in hell he'll ever be president or be high up in, in Republican leadership but he's he tends to say intelligent things that go against his party uh, because he just can't help it um so I like I like uh, Lindsey Graham. I think uh, I mean not in the way that I, I thought he had a voice to, that was worth listening to uh, in some degree about foreign policy because I thought and we talked a little bit yeah. about this that uh, I mean whatever you say about Obama and personally I, I I didn't always love his foreign policy and there was a there was I agree a, but to be fair he had no mandate to do anything sure. as a result of Bush right absolutely and, and, and I think that that, that uh, but I think and and I, and I think that was a lot of Lindsey Graham did a lot of interesting uh, like backseat driving. Yeah. Right, like you know, uh, uh, foreign policy. So he could say things because he didn't have to in any way implement this this policy that he could be as idealist as he wanted. But he, he brought up some good points, and I think he is actually one of the few people in national government who is thinking about foreign policy ever. Yeah, period. Yeah. I, I, and John McCain often is like our he's our veteran, and you know, he let's listen to him about foreign policy. We forget that no. we forget that Joe, <laughs> no. we forget that Joe Biden's a huge foreign policy wonk as well. Right, he's been, he's been, he's been buried. Muzzled. Yeah. yeah, he's been buried. Uh, so we haven't had that. 
voice from the left giving a credible reason for any intervention. Right, and I think because, because yeah, because there's been an Obama administration, yeah. and it, it, it's really not clear what the driving goals or forces behind the Obama administration were. They're talking points for sure. Foreign policy should be seen as a complicated thing where we don't have simple goals. Uh, the embrace of real politics is more likely on the, on, the, on the Republican side, though certainly not guaranteed. But I think Democrats always come with a sense of, okay, well, this is this is how we're going to apply the same template across the world. And I think that's that's not good foreign policy from the get-go. I think it's a, it's a very complicated thing, and you don't always get to be an idealist in the room. I would enjoy getting drunk with Lindsey Graham. He's probably the politician I would most like to hang out with. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, uh, yeah, so. Yeah. Cool. Uh, so our last segment is just random shit. <laughs> uh, so we pick a topic. I would like to talk about reality television, specifically the show Kid Nation. Uh, go ahead, talk about Kid Nation. Uh, so, you know, it, it's all available on YouTube. It's incredible. I think everybody should watch it. Yeah, it's uh, kind of like Civics 101. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they took, you know, 40 kids, all from from the ages of, like, 9 to... to 16 maybe not even I think I want to say that maybe 16 but like maybe like 14 or 14 say. Like just a bunch of kids and they took them out to the desert in New Mexico a ghost town Bonanza uh, City Bonanza City <laughs> <laughs> but it is it is constructed for the show it's not literally like a ruined town yeah yeah ruined yeah, yeah, town yeah 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 it's yeah. <laughs> so an old like uh, movie set yeah. town uh, and they said we're gonna film you as you make a society yeah uh, like the first episode is they get these wagons with like theoretically everything they need mm-hmm. and then they haul them in there's no like so the first couple episodes are just like how are the kids gonna feed themselves like, yeah no food is provided right no food is cook. cooking yeah. yeah they don't have anything ready made it's all like yeah. eggs and like yeah they, they also have politically elected representatives uh, from the four I guess like teams that are uh, they're put into uh, the red team, the gold team, the blue team, and the green team. Yeah, and they're all uh, they compete in various challenges at the end of each episode, and then whatever place they get, they're assigned to four categories. There's the the, the proletariat. Uh, yeah, there's the the laborers. Yeah, who, um, the there's, there's like the latr- and the latrines. Yeah, and stuff, yeah, yeah, right? yeah. So they just do, and they get paid the least. Yeah, uh, and then there's like, markedly like it's like the people get the pay differential is like one out of a hundred, right? Yeah, like yeah. you get a penny if you're a laborer mm-hmm. for like a for this week to spend. Yeah, not even uh, the whole week, like every day, right? Yeah, so it's day, even yeah, multiplied yeah, like so. And then there's the the cooks. Yeah, uh, and they cook all the food. And they're supposed to be making all the food. Yeah. Uh, then there's the merchant class, uh, and so they run the various shops and. In town, and there's like a toy store and a, it's like a chocolate store. Yeah, it's soda fountain is mostly yeah, the, yeah. yeah. And then there's just the the leisure class who get paid the most and don't have to do anything. But yeah, they, they can do whatever they want. They can, like, yeah, yeah. But then they, they get the most money and they get it trickles down and they can spend it however they like. Yeah. Uh, and you know, if you do better, you can change your role, right? So you can, you know, in the challenge. Uh, so it's, it's a really interesting show because then you're, you know, you, they have leaders that they elect periodically. Uh, who are responsible for making sure everything goes smoothly and trying to win these challenges? Yeah, and, and it's and it's they don't track. Also, it's like the like the best leaders aren't necessarily the best at like winning the challenges, right? No. Like by far, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. They're, they're best at keeping their people happy. Or yeah. Uh, 
yeah. whatever it is. So what did you gain out of watching this? Because I guess you both have watched this. Yeah. yeah. I thought it was going to be real Lord of the Flies and salacious uh-huh. going into it. I found it really moving. They're not acting. They just say what they think, and they they all went into it really trying hard to do a good job and mm-hmm. like make it work. Also, what I found so fascinating was just how... They're all American kids. It's just how much democracy and, demo- and politics is like in our DNA as a country. Mm-hmm. So they form these parties, they act politically in way, and they're like nine-year-olds, you know? But yeah. They just mirror the way adults would do it. And it's also the way they're gaming the game itself, right? Because yeah. there's like every week the four elected representatives choose someone to get a star made of gold that's worth its weight it's like in gold. Th- yeah, it's like $10,000 or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. Ah. So it's like, so yeah, they pick one of the members of Kid Nation to get like $10,000. Nine-year-old has no idea, you know, what $10,000 is. Uh, so it's fascinating, right? So you're seeing like 14, you know, kids are about to go to college competing against a nine-year-old for like, you know, the town's favor. Maybe being a point, you know, given this $10,000 by another nine-year-old. Right, right, right. Yeah. The, the class system is also like, whatever team is the victor also gets to make the decision about what town improvement they get. Yeah, so in like, each week they get, they can improve the town in some way, whether that's by having an arcade or having fruits and vegetables. Yeah, there's always like a really moralizing <laughs> choice, yeah. right? It's like, so you have to pick between one or the other. You can have books to read, or you can have like a, a t-shirt making machine. I, I forget. It was actually the most fascinating one was the one with the, um, where they were going to get like, it was like one of the last weeks. They're really like negative, like right wing team is in power in the last couple like spoilers <laughs> but um so they get offered the choice of both you could have like a great library with all these books about science or you could just have like a pool hall <laughs> and it's just like obvious what the moral choice is right but they make this really plain choice it's like look we've done the moral choice every time we have three weeks left in this town none of us are going to read all these books about science like, we're just not we have like, a ton of time but this is like so let's just do the pool hall and then we'll have fun for three weeks right and the show tries to make it this like thing where it's like real debauched and like all the discipline in the town broke down but it's like no that was the right choice <laughs> that was like actually the right choice right and like the I don't know it's I recommend watching yeah, it I think it's, it's I think it's a really uh, the civic purpose of reality TV is certainly uh, worth arguing about but this show kind of makes sense as far as a, and it was declared illegal obviously yeah they, there's only one season illegal <laughs> yeah children should not be doing this it's yeah, classified. I think the show they to get around it they legally classified it as like a summer camp yeah <laughs> and then like the kids show up like bruised and beaten from the desert with all this somebody burn themselves with grease yeah. you know yeah which is sure yeah. but you know it's this shouldn't have happened we shouldn't be able to watch it but since it did and we can you should okay yeah alright no 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 it's, uh, now I'm super curious yeah. yeah and it's just like the way that the the choices of leaders are not always the most intuitive right it's crazy it's crazy to watch it's complicated yeah. and interesting and alright yeah. I, I really recommend it um, yeah. cool if you're trying to feel better about America in the wake of the uh, 2016 election, I think Kid Nation will show you our sins and what is good about us. And, okay. Um, totally. Agreed. But, uh, yeah, it's a force in America, reality TV, that we have to reckon with and understand the tropes of it. That's true. I guess because, uh, because of our president. I, yeah. I didn't understand the linkage. I was being a little thick here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I, I think... Uh, I've never seen The Apprentice. 
I don't intend to really. I, I don't I, think I feel like I want to. You want to? I want to. I'll watch the credits with you. Yeah, yeah. I, I will need hugs and, yeah, yeah. and Let's go. food. Let's go through the apprentice. Let's <laughs> <laughs> get a preview of the next. Like, because I feel like something that we. I mean, I maybe he's really lovable on it, and we should just all learn to, you know, because I want to. I want to. I want to accept that Trump voters are not completely horrible people and. If he, if I'd watched all The Apprentice, and he was like a really lovable figure. On but I don't think that's a shtick. But I think that yeah, yeah. I mean you, you, you could you can accept that they're not all horrible people and still not like Trump, especially on The Apprentice. Right, but his his image is so it pre-exists his own yeah. you know political ambitions. And if I'd been pre-wired to see him as this like lovable agent of fair and <laughs> you know like judgment, I, I, I thought it was like the whole thing was just like. His whole character was his mercurial nature, right? Yeah. yeah. That it's like good TV because like you don't he won't be fair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Keep being arbitrary. Who knows? Like, Who knows? Arbitrary. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I want to be able to if I ever were to meet Donald Trump, I want to be able to talk about something with him. Just in case. Sure. Yeah. Totally. You have anything else? No. no. Thank you for having me on yeah, the requirement. This yeah. is a good time. You should all uh, buy and read Gene's book, The Dream of Dr. Bantam, oh, obviously. That's, uh, that's, that's a novel uh, with or books. And then also you can read her short story collection, uh, The Black Emerald. Is there anything else you want to promote? No. <laughs> <laughs> all, right. all right. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. Thanks for having me.